the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. In this episode, I talk with former police officer and cyber safety expert Yasmin London. Yasmin is the executive director of YSAFE, Australia's largest online safety education organisation. Yasmin is known for igniting social change through education and courageous conversations. In this episode, we discuss how we can support our young people to be safe online, the importance of listening to our young people, practical ways to navigate common digital dilemmas and so much more. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Yasmin London. Yaz, welcome to the School of Wellbeing. Thank you so much for having me, Meg. It's great to be here. This conversation, I'm sure, is going to open some minds and hearts because digital plays such a big role in our lives and they also bring some dilemmas to our lives that we have never faced before. So I'm really curious about jumping into that. But before we get there, I'd love to know from you, Yaz, what's your story? How have you got so passionate about this world of digital technologies? Uh, where do we even begin? I'll start, obviously, in the police force. So I, I spent 13 years uh, in the New South Wales Police doing a variety of different roles and gone from, from working in plain clothes to the media department to community engagement. But a lot of my, my service was based around young people and trying to engage them and trying to sort of create connection between police and the often scary uniform that, that we wear and, uh, and young people and try to establish sort of trust and authenticity there. So during that role as a youth liaison officer, part of it was to go and educate kids on a variety of different issues in schools and online safety started to pop up more and more. And I had alongside these sort of requests to come to speak at schools, uh, a bit of a, a scary incident with a young person who was suffering suicidal ideation. So I ended up in a, a negotiation with her on top of a clifftop. And when I spoke to her about what had happened and what had preceded, you know, this situation that we were in, she told me about a cyberbullying incident that had occurred uh, where people who she thought were her friends had taken a picture of her in class without her knowledge, posted it to Instagram, uh, where a lot of different people had made some pretty nasty comments about um, her appearance. And someone at the end of this thread said, why don't you go and drink bleach and kill yourself? And I remember when she said that to me, you know, we're standing literally at at the top of a a cliff here and the penny drops as to how important this conversation was and and is with so many kids. So I guess, you know, luckily in that situation, we were able to get her over the correct side of the fence and get her some help. And I believe today she's doing very well, but uh, it really sort of made me understand more holistically how we need to support young people in digital environments, how we need to understand their, their issues, the problems that they experience and really give them some practical strategies so that nobody else ends up in that sort of a situation. That was a reality check. So my experiences obviously through the police were one thing at that time. And then I also had a bit of a personal experience that was kind of unique uh, roughly at about the same time where I had a a video of me in police uniform go viral. unexpectedly. The backstory of that one was I was uh, doing a community engagement event at Martin Place in the city of Sydney because we were there to engage with the community. I had a, a member of the public come up and start sort of challenging me to a dance-off 
Uh, and he definitely picked the right cop because I was all over that. You know, I'm like, bring it on. Uh, and so we had this lovely moment where we, we were sort of having a bit of a dance to this song and I didn't think too much about it at the time. But, of course, there was a large crowd around me and many people that were filming this interaction. And it eventually ended up on YouTube, uh, went on to Facebook, had something like six or seven million views, uh, ended up on the Today Show talking about being the dancing cop and all of this sort of thing. So, you know, luckily for me, it was a positive experience. However, another reality check that as an adult and as a police officer, that even I can't control the internet. I couldn't control people's perceptions of me. I couldn't really control whether or not they posted things. So again, it just came back to that really important understanding that we all need a bit more education on this topic. And so I wanted to go out and deliver that. And that's sort of how YSAFE came about. I met some like-minded individuals and, and this is what we created. I'm really looking forward to watching that dancing cop video. <laughs> I'm going to Google that and find that and add it to the show notes. And could you tell me a little bit about YSAFE and what you do? At YSAFE, we are an eclectic team of experts. So we have people like me with a background in law enforcement on the team. We have child and adolescent clinical psychologists. We have teachers, both primary and secondary, tech experts, ICT educators. So really, uh, I guess, mixed bag of professional disciplines that all have a role to play when it comes to online safety education. And I think the, the big focus for us is to really develop the social and emotional learning elements when it comes to managing online safety for young people and for their advocates uh, and parents so that we all have a good understanding about why the sorts of things that happen online actually happen. And we really importantly as well have a pro-technology ethos. So, you know, research tells us over and over again that despite the fact that, you know, there's a lot of fear mongering in the media and there's a lot of fear generally around things like social media, that the way to get to kids and the way to get them to understand how to look after themselves and how we can empower them and ultimately, you know, really equip them with the skills and knowledge that they need to thrive in digital environments is to have that pro-technology ethos and not necessarily always fall to blaming the platforms for what we know are really often peer-to-peer issues. So that's what we really try to focus on. I love that you've created an ecosystem around this topic and also highlighting the importance for education around Mm. these topics and also knowing that so much is out of our control. Mm. That is our reality. And also there is so much we can do in the way that we respond to issues as they present. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us some common issues that you're dealing with day in and day out? There's a multitude of issues, I guess, that we deal with. Uh, Cyberbullying, obviously, is a major one. And particularly for primary age kids, we're starting to see this concept of cyber ostracism not just raise its head, but become more and more common. And that's really a term that will describe young people being left out, intentionally being left out, or repetitively being left out of closed groups. We're seeing access to inappropriate content. So young people coming across pornography or explicit content, you know, sometimes they're seeking it out, but sometimes they're coming across it inadvertently. And that's a really important facet of the conversation when we're talking to teachers and we're talking to parents, because we often fall into this knee-jerk reaction of assumptions that young people have tried to sort of look at this sort of stuff intentionally, whereas we know that they're curious or they might click on a pop-up or they might Google something without a filtering control or system on their device. And suddenly they've sort of been taken somewhere that they weren't expecting. 
I often tell this story about a friend of mine who had a a 10-year-old son and he had a couple of friends over after school and they wanted to jump onto Google to search a couple of things and my friend thought he was a pretty switched on dad and he actually connected his laptop to his television so he could see what they were searching. So he thought he was absolutely killing it. And a few minutes after he'd connected them, he came back and he saw uh, quite explicit gay pornography on the television screen. And so he's had a, a reaction and he's run into his son and he said, what are you doing? What are you looking at this stuff for? And his son just looked up to him really innocently and said, oh, dad, we were just searching for games for three boys. And so the penny drops in those moments, right? Games for three boys searching so innocently as a a 10-year-old can sometimes bring up things that are unexpected. And I I guess that's a really important sort of part of the discussion. So pornography, sexting is something that we are unfortunately continuing to have to deal with with young people that are, you know, younger in age. So we're starting to talk to primary-aged kids about these sorts of, of issues in stage three. And I guess a really important one and one that I'm particularly passionate about is online grooming and predators. They're everywhere. We certainly saw throughout COVID that there was a a dramatic increase in activity from them online on the dark web in particular. We've seen a large increase in reports of self-generated child sexual abuse material to uh, places like the National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children or the Australian uh, Centre to Counter Child Exploitation have all seen a significant rise in that. And interestingly, I was listening uh, a little while ago to some research, I guess most predominant demographic when it comes to young people doing that are young boys that are being targeted. Often we make assumptions that it's young girls that might be looked at by by predators, but young boys are the fastest growing uh, demographic when it comes to producing that sort of content. Lots of issues, lots of things that we need to be aware of as parents and staff in schools. But again, as you mentioned, Meg, it sounds overwhelming and it is scary, but we have the capacity with a bit of knowledge and a bit of expertise to manage these sorts of situations effectively, especially when we do it as a community. Yes, we can manage these situations. And I think that what I've learned over the journey, it's about how we respond as adults, Mm -hmm. as educators, as parents to these events. I can only imagine that father thinking, oh, I've absolutely killed it. I've got the HDMI cord. Look at me. I'm so tech savvy going away and coming back thinking, oh, dear, this is not what we had in plan. (laughs) And the children, they hadn't planned this. They were thinking of different kinds of games. In those moments, this is where we have the opportunity to really foster connection and curiosity and growth, mm-hmm. or we can be quite disruptive in the way that we approach these situations. So how can we support our young people as they're navigating all of these digital dilemmas? It's a big question, Meg, and I think the answer is that there's not a black and white sort of solution. It's partly, uh, you know, muddling our ways through depending on what, what happens in terms of incidents and what our child's interest is. Really importantly, I guess, doesn't matter what happens, we need to try and have a non-judgmental approach when it comes to Uh, the incidents that happen to young people or what their interests are. So I like to use the word curiosity. Stay curious about their online environments. It doesn't mean that you can't respectfully challenge them on some of their assumptions or some of the things that they think about or, of course, do, especially if it's uh, illegal or puts them at risk. You know, there has to be firm boundaries. There has to be limits to what they can do, consistent limits. But at the same time, you know, where we've got to find balance is we want 
them ultimately to come to us if there's a problem and to find any opportunity to encourage help-seeking behaviour because we know that that's the number one protective factor when it comes to young people. So if we stay curious, if we are reducing our judgment, even if we think TikTok is ridiculous or Roblox is boring or, you know, why are we spending hours sort of scrolling through Instagram, for example, if we sort of try to refrain from being too judgmental, the likelihood that they will, will come to us when there's a problem because they feel we get it, they feel we're on board because we've shown them that before this incident has happened, is always going to put us in that sort of best sort of situation for success, if you will. So trying to understand a bit about their worlds, trying to communicate with them regularly, create teachable moments where possible, and then try to make sure that that help-seeking behaviour is always encouraged. Help-seeking is so important and it's such an interesting topic because the way that we respond will really impact if they come and seek help again. Mm -hmm. And so if we respond by shut that down, give me that, you're never having it again, they're not likely to come back the next time something happens. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking, I was reflecting and having a little giggle to myself because I remember when we were in around year 11 or year 12, it was way before Facebook, but there was the internet and we had email and I was at an all-girls school and a boy at the brother school had created an online site. We didn't have anything like this. Mm -hmm. And I remember we found a way to all write messages in this space. Mm -hmm. And for us, it was absolutely revolutionary. This idea that we're on this computer, not just typing up our final essay. We're talking to each other and very quickly it went (laughs) pear-shaped and very quickly we were in the principal's office explaining what was happening. And I still remember the look on the principal's face and the deputies because they were just thinking, what the, (laughs) this is, this is completely... Where do we start? And they would just like shut it down. It's got to go. So straight away, we didn't shut it down. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just this tension of what's helpful, what's unhelpful. And now I'm thinking, gosh, that could have been the start of Facebook. How clever. Mm -hmm. But there's so much of us that yearns to connect online, Mm -hmm. yearns to be seen, yearns to be heard. So what can we do play with this tension of technology is beautiful. Technology connects us. Technology lifts us up. We couldn't be doing this podcast without technology. And also there is a dark side. Mm. You talked earlier about the dark web. There is this dark side. What do we need to know about the dark side and how it can impact our young people if they're going on unaware? I think it comes down to giving them the skills to recognise when something's gone too far and to also give them the skills to act if that has occurred. Let's say, for example, talking about your your base where you were chatting, you know, if something went wrong, if somebody shared something that they shouldn't have, if there was bullying going on, how can we empower young people to act when they know that in their gut something's wrong? You know, we talk about yes and no feelings, for example. How can we help them feel empowered to act? It starts by understanding young people's motivations and maybe what might be a barrier to them seeking help. An example might be, and this is a really typical one, you know, kids generally want to help in situations, but they don't want to be a dobber. You know, they don't want to be labelled as the person that sort of ruins everybody's fun, reports the MySpace, you know, chat, for example. So we've got to allow them anonymity 
ability to to do something about it but safely so we've got to understand their motivations in order to I guess facilitate that in a lot of ways when it comes to spaces like the dark web for example part of it is acknowledging that kids are really curious you know this is how they often come across things that they potentially shouldn't because they're seeking to understand and you know I, I guess it, it helps to understand that they they have this habit and like all of us you know as you mentioned this sense for connection control and competency what we call the three c's you know that's what social media and what the internet taps right into it's why it's so effective um, so understanding and helping them understand those parts of themselves uh, one of the things that we do a lot is we try to sort of tap into the psychology of, of persuasive technology and how uh, we essentially as humans can be socially engineered to perform an action or a task you know sort of lifting the lid on those psychological strategies for kids a lot of the time is a bit groundbreaking and they start to put the pieces together and when they have the basics and they have the foundation then we can start building on their knowledge of, of you know how do we withdraw effectively how do we de-escalate situations how do I report things how do I look after myself inevitably how do I choose not to click on that link despite the fact that I'm curious because I know it's possibly going to lead me somewhere that's not going to be great for my well-being so it takes maturity and it's not going to happen immediately. Some adults are completely incapable of doing this. It's something that we just have to continually work on. And, you know, we can do that with them when we're having regular conversations about online safety in schools, for example, rather than having the tick in the box presentation once a year that we can say, you know, that's the curriculum link sort of approved and that's our job done. It's about investing meaningfully and I guess trying to acquire the resources and knowledge to do that. That idea of ongoing conversations, because it's mm. a part of our daily life. Minute to minute, it technology is. is a part of our life and so it needs to be a part of our conversations and I guess probably a part of us that doesn't want to know. We don't want to know mm. what they're doing. It's almost that yeah. ignorance is bliss <laughs> at times. <laughs> However, I'm guessing that's not a helpful strategy. I totally understand that. I think, you know, it's like having to parent or teach in a whole secondary environment We've got to deal with the physical world and now we've got to deal with the online world. The reality is our young people don't see that delineation. It's just all their one big environment that they play in. And, you know, there are risks that we, we need to try and protect them from for a number of years while they developmentally kind of don't have the critical thinking ability to do that themselves and then progressively equip them with the skills to sort of try and manage their own online environments. And I, I particularly feel, you know, for teachers as well because there's there's so much going on in a school day. But what we also know is because there's sometimes a lack of reporting at home or a lack of willingness to speak to parents, that teachers are often that second option, I guess, for, for kids to feel safe, to report things, to speak to, to seek help from. And we've got to show that we know a little bit about this. We've got to show that we know how to, how to manage it and how to help them from their point of view, what a good solution might be. Uh, so typically, as a teacher, we might have an incident and, you know, we'll deal with the physical world implications. We'll interview a child or we might call the parents or we might around, arrange for a counsellor, but we'll miss something that is the number one thing a young person is looking for, and that is the removal of that content from a platform. 
also the the bystanders, for example, that are looking to see how effectively these staff members or the adults deal with this. You know, so are they going to uh, leave this picture or this video or this comment up to allow that person to be re-victimised every time somebody else or somebody new sees that picture? For young people, and this is why the student voice is so important when we're talking about things like policy in schools and when we're trying to effectively address this from an educational point of view, that we need to know what they see as a successful solution and not impose our own perspectives on them. So, yeah, it's, it's a complicated one, I guess, is, is always the, the default answer. The time has passed for the moment where we go, I don't really want to know about it anymore because unfortunately we'd be failing our young people if we did that. And so we're all in this together. There's no expectation that everybody knows absolutely everything. I certainly don't. You know, there's changes every day to social media platforms or games or whatever the latest hot topic is. And we're all sort of playing catch up a little bit because kids are getting into this and not sort of finding out too much about it until there's an issue. We're all playing catch up. But it's about knowledge sharing, it's about a non-judgmental approach and it's that curiosity and trying to generate genuine interest in the online world. By generating that interest, we're inviting connection. We, we are. I mean, look, nobody likes having a conversation that feels insincere. That can be said for young people who are so great at tapping into whether somebody is authentic or not. Uh, And, you know, you and I were discussing this before, how important it is to be authentic with young people because they can smell a rat a mile away. And if they feel that you get it, they don't expect you to know everything. In fact, they assume you don't. But if you're that teacher or you're that parent that they think, okay, I've had this issue, I can go to this teacher who's going to judge me and tell me off and might potentially be looking at a suspension and they're not really going to hear me out. They're not going to hear the full story about what happened before that led to this situation with me. Or I'll go to the teacher that I know will listen and know that maybe they've heard of or played or have told me in the past that they watched TikTok and found something funny or entertaining. Then I'm going to go to that teacher because they're going to get it. And even if they don't know exactly what to do, I have faith that they're going to try their best, that they're going to listen to me, that they might even ask me that question, what does a solution look like for you in this situation? And I know if it was me in school, I would definitely be going to that teacher that maybe knows a little less, but is going to be more receptive to what's going on. And that question, what does support look like for you? I think that is a beautiful question. And often as adults, we probably skip that stage and just jump into Mm -hmm. fixing and shut this down. As adults, whether it's in school or at home, you know, we've got obligations. Like there's, there's mandatory reporting obligations, that, let's be honest. And I think sometimes that something that needs to be communicated even a little bit more with students because it's a trust issue, right? It, they feel that they come and they talk to someone and they don't understand that there are legal implications for not disclosing things. I think it helps to, to be clear and communicative about those sorts of things. And we can't get around them. There's sometimes situations that we have to act in, in ways that a young person might not choose. When it comes to what does a solution look like for you, it might be give me some language to de-escalate this situation in in the playground. Or what can I say that's going to shut it down and not amplify or cause other people to pile on in this situation? Could I temporarily move classes? Could I take a day off from school? Little things that might seem relatively insignificant at the time, but might mean a lot for that young person. There's a range of different scenarios, I guess. There's solutions are a little bit more attractive to young people that we could discuss. But I guess listening to their answer is that first step because sometimes they say things that you don't expect and 
sometimes it can be a super quick and easy win if we're just listening. The power of listening to young people and when we do listen, it's interesting how often problems do get resolved because you've heard Mm -hmm. them, they felt heard. If they just want that content gone, we've got it removed. Maybe they've had some time off from school or an early afternoon and we know that the way young people work is they're on to the next thing. It's a bit Mm -hmm. like the media cycle sometimes, like things blow up and then it's on to the next thing and working with our young people and supporting them When it comes to phones, when should a young person get a phone and how do we (laughs) scaffold this process? Yes, you've got to help us. What do we do? It's a digital dilemma. Uh, Look, it it sure is. And look, there isn't a finite answer for a reason. I think we've really got to look at at a a range of different factors. Their developmental stage, obviously, their previous history of showing moments of being able to self-regulate. And I mean, look, None of us are really great at that, but just small moments, hints that they've been able to sort of shut things down, turn things off. I mean, we've got kids now, though, that I've spoken to even recently that have taken themselves off TikTok because they recognised that it wasn't really doing things for them that they saw as beneficial or positive. We make these assumptions again, but kids continue to surprise us. Developmentally, you know, they don't really have the capacity to manage the onslaught of technology and everything that comes with it prior to, I would say, 12. I think generally that transition from year six to year seven is not a bad time to think about it. It's that sort of growing up moment where they've got to go from from primary to high school and so there's an increased sense of responsibility and an expectation of maturity and a lot of parents will say, well, you know, I'm going to let them catch the bus to school, going to let them take public transport, I want to make sure they're safe. There's ways around that. I think that's a, that can be a bit of an excuse that we're handing over a device, and an iPhone, for example, at that, that has every feature uh, available to that young person. There are Apple Watches, things like that, that are handed out that can replicate those same sorts of features too. So we need to sort of not kid ourselves that that's the reason that we're handing it over. Whatever it is, whatever time people do choose to do it, it needs to come with a set of rules, a set of responsibilities and expectations for the privilege of accessing that device and accessing the internet. That phone uh, or that device comes with parental control tools implemented as a non-negotiable initially or at least for a couple of years. Those tools filter out inappropriate content, block certain platforms from being accessed. They have the ability to set screen time routines so it would switch that phone off, bar a couple of features during school time, for example. There's some really fantastic products out there that allow control when it comes to that. There'd be a digital device contract that would come with that phone that addresses the key issues that young people might face and the expectations that they act if they're a bystander, for example, and they see something that isn't right. That might not be acting, you know, by telling someone off. And in fact, we wouldn't advocate for that, but it might be reporting something to the platform, learning about the e-safety commissioner and what they can do if things really go wrong. And when it comes to those digital device contracts, it really does work to create a sense of formality and responsibility when it comes to these devices. You wouldn't hand over the keys to a car to a 12-year-old without expecting that they learn the road rules and wear their seatbelt and abide by the rules. And we've got to really think the same way when it comes to these digital devices. When we hand them over with rules and expectations and boundaries, and we give them that little bit of rope as well to show that they are trustworthy, that we're not making assumptions that they're automatically going to do the wrong thing. It's a partnership. 
It's not a dictatorship. And that's where kids will respond well. If you are then considering things like social media, obviously we wouldn't choose to give young people social media under the age of 13, despite the fact we know a ton of kids have it. But if we're doing things in a best practice kind of point of view, it might be talking to a young person if they really want Instagram and saying, all right, well, you go off and you come back to me in a week with a report about all of the safety features that are there on Instagram if something goes wrong. What are the risks? What are the benefits? Let's compare Instagram to TikTok. What are the risks? What are the benefits? They don't even need to go on these platforms even to understand these sorts of things. They have trust and safety centers. They've got community guidelines. And this is a this is a great example for teachers as well. If you're looking for an idea to talk about social media, to educate kids about these sorts of things, these sorts of tasks really allow them to develop their skills and knowledge before we hand over a device or before we hand over a social media platform. So I guess in the end, we're going to make them work for it. Uh, And when we do that, you know, they're better equipped to deal with it no matter what age they are. I like that idea of seeing it as a rite of passage, that you're Mm -hmm. maturing, you're growing up, and with this privilege comes responsibility. And here are our guidelines. Here's what's okay and here's Mm -hmm. what's not okay and the consequences accordingly to your family structure or the school system. We've got that digital dilemma out of the way. The next one, and you referred to it earlier, and something that I've heard time and time again, is when young people are left out of WhatsApp groups or any kind of groups. How do we navigate that one? You're listening to the School of Wellbeing podcast with Meg Durham. My purpose for creating this podcast was to give big-hearted educators and parents access to honest, engaging and empowering conversations. I would love to hear from you. How has the School of Wellbeing impacted your life? What action have you taken as a result from listening to the podcast? What has changed for you? What have you loved? Please send your stories of impact to hello at openmindeducation.com or send me a message on Instagram or LinkedIn. I would love to hear from you. Now let's get back to my conversation with Yasmin London. It's a really hard one and it is sort of popping up more and more. Everybody wants to feel included. Ultimately, people don't necessarily have to include everybody. And so really navigating it is almost dealing with it in a way that we we understand it's a peer-to-peer issue rather than someone not being allowed in a, in a chat group on a platform. And so tendency again to blame the platform and, and social media and catastrophize, you know, these sorts of situations because of the technology. If it was uh, an issue that we're seeing in a school, it, it would be figuring out why this particular person is consistently left out. What's the story? How can we conceptualize this particular issue? And I totally understand and respect in schools, you know, nobody has the time a lot of the time to do that, to do it effectively. If there is a designated cyber safety teacher or a a cyber safety team that have a bit of an understanding around how these sorts of things work, if there's an incident, uh, if there's resources or capacity, of course, to try and conceptualize the issue as to why this young person is consistently being left out is really helpful because you get to the crux of the issue rather than repeatedly getting kids in and interviewing them and talking to them about why they weren't allowed on a chat group. We want to solve the actual underlying issue that's going on. Uh, It's also sometimes about 
teaching kids about resilience. Not always going to be accepted. You're not always going to be the one that's invited. And that's okay. You don't need to be invited all the time. And it obviously really depends on the young person and their ability to deal with that sort of a conversation. As we spoke about earlier, everybody, particularly kids, their number one most important factor is being accepted and being part of a group. So it might be helping encourage other friendships or stronger friendships, really encouraging participation in teams or group activities or sports, for example, or, uh, you know, other games even. So really expanding their friendship groups and trying to encourage other relationships if we're just continually hitting a brick wall. And then, of course, you know, dealing with the people that are doing the, the ostracizing, getting them to really understand a little bit about empathy, maybe running some lessons in class about this. And again, that bystander moment where even if young people don't necessarily feel empowered or willing to intervene in that moment, it might be encouraging empathy in them to approach that person that's being ostracized in the classroom or in the playground and just saying, look, I can see this is really difficult. I just want you to know that I I see you and I see that this situation is hurtful and harmful. And so I'm here for you and try and work a way around this as well. So I guess it's coming at it from a lot of different angles and trying to find something that creates a a sound resolution uh, for all the stakeholders involved. For us to remember that at the end of the day, it's not the platform, it's the way that it's being used and coming back to those people concerns Mm. and issues. And it's interesting as an adult, there are some WhatsApp groups that you think, oh, I'd be happy to be blocked or kicked out of, like, please, (laughs) that'll (laughs) save a few. The 25 uh, class groups, parenting class groups. (laughs) Like that would be wonderful. (laughs) But then if I was excluded from my book club, I would be heartbroken. So we need to remember that for our young people, it's a big deal. You hit the nail on the head with it, Meg. And I think that's a really important uh, piece of the puzzle as well. Uh, we know that parents and teachers will will respond quickly uh, and generally pretty effectively for the big issues. So if it's a, a significant issue, a child's come across something that's explicit at school or they've sent a nude image or there's been something where there's suicidal ideation or mental health concerns. But we pay less attention and we expect kids to just get over it quickly when it's these less intense negative online behaviours that they're experiencing or they're they're enacting themselves. We sort of go, oh, it's just been left out of a group. I mean, it's not like you've had a nude image shared. And for a young person, that just shows that you don't get it, like you don't get that this is actually really important. For some kids, they might go, I'd rather have a, a nude image shared than be left out of this group that's critical to me at this time. So we've got to acknowledge the value proposition of whatever is going on for them. As you said, you know, if it's a, a chat group with 50 mums from kindergarten where you can't keep up anyway versus book club or whether it's, you know, uh, a small group of, of, of the cool kids that you want to be part of, that has a really different value proposition. So we've got to acknowledge that and just deal with with what we've got in front of us. And thinking about that pornography piece, how can we support our young people and how can we respond in helpful ways when it's presented? 
Pornography, it's a really big topic to tackle. And I start with parents, you know, we've got to have the courageous conversations that nobody really wants to have about sex and relationships with very young children. Uh, For teachers, obviously, it's a little bit different in terms of appropriateness and things. I think we all as adults and advocates need to be prepared to myth bust, particularly when it comes to pornography. And we need the facts, we need the information to be able to do that. For example, when it comes to pornography, 75, 70, 78% of young people have been exposed to it by the age of 11. So it's not an if, but it's a when that's going to happen. So we need to get over the fact that it's maybe not happening for young kids. It is. What we also know is that there is a lot of violence directed towards women in pornography. There is spitting, slapping, choking, and that around 95% of those violent acts are met with a positive or pleasurable response. We need to be able to have that conversation, again, with the right age groups. We need to be able to to myth bust that and we need to be able to say that this is not real, this is not intimacy, this isn't an expectation of you as a man or a woman. And we need to really break down, I guess, the examples that are often given in the media or with good social awareness campaigns that these people are actors, they are paid actors, they are performing a role like in any kind of entertainment industry, trying to make it as fun and interesting as possible or as shocking and as scandalous as possible. So giving them good examples as well, comparisons, for example, a Marvel movie is big and bright and exciting because it stimulates the senses. Pornography does that in the same way. So I guess having an understanding around a couple of key talking points when it comes to pornography is really helpful. Some handy facts that are up your sleeve so that you can myth bust if they say something generic or make an assumption and just be open to having the conversation and not fearful. I think what we found over particularly the last 12 to 18 months when it comes to things like the consent conversation, kids want to talk about it. They want a voice in this and they're not afraid. The people that are afraid are the adults that are unsure of how to broach it, don't want to go too far as well. You know, they don't want to say the wrong thing and make it worse. But I think generally people have a level of appropriateness and conservative ways of approaching these sorts of things. I would err on the side of caution, but more than anything, have the conversation that needs to be had. A thread that's gone through this whole conversation is about being curious and having these courageous conversations. We just need to have more conversations about these topics. Depending on the issue, in most cases, kids are prepared to talk if they feel you're on side. And that's our job. It's not our job to be their best friend, but it's our job to establish a relationship of openness and trust and a little bit of capacity. So if something goes wrong, we have a few ideas uh, about how we might solve that problem. So whether we're parents or whether we're teachers, the idea is that we want to be approachable. We want to feel that they can come to us and have them feel that they can come to us if there's a problem because we don't know what we don't know. We have no chance of fixing a situation and no chance of empowering a young person through potentially a negative experience and turning it into one eventually empowers them or educates them, so positive experience, if they're not prepared to come to us and engage with us in the first place. Um, The worst thing that they can do, I guess, in many ways is get advice from the internet, get an education from Pornhub, talk to their friends about what the best thing to do is because everybody's got different levels of investment and grand plans about what should happen. It's important where we can to encourage that help seeking for the adults in their world. And thank you so much, Yaz. You're an absolute breath of fresh air in this space. And (laughs) when I talk to you, I just feel relieved and I feel much more comfortable that it's going to pop up. It's a part of our lives. 
it's happening. Let's have the conversations. Let's get curious and let's move on. Absolutely. I think we don't need to create melodrama over it and catastrophize situations unnecessarily. We just need to be pragmatic, practical, strategic, have some, you know, go-tos that we know are usually good solutions for kids. And as I mentioned, you really get their voice, understand what they see as success. We assume that we know best, whereas sometimes it's just as simple as asking the question in the right moment and listening for their response. That authenticity piece, I guess, is, is a really important one to take away. Without a doubt. To wrap up this incredible conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Okay. I am inspired <laughs> by... Uh, I think I have to go back to exactly what I just said. People that are really authentic, it's hard. It's, it's easier said than done. And I think those people who are really prepared to be vulnerable as well, um, you know, it might be a teacher, for example, that's prepared to share a story that, that happened for them to create that sense of connection. That really is quite inspirational. But I think those people who also don't use their vulnerabilities as a crutch or an excuse to hold them back as well, to, to prevent them from getting in the arena and getting their hands dirty and having a crack at a situation, even if they feel that they're not 100% across it. You know, people that are willing to sort of jump in and, and see what happens. When life feels hard? When life feels hard, control the controllables. That's my favourite saying. And focus on action. You know, whether that's big or small, any action that can keep you moving forward, you might be able to tell that I'm currently reading Atomic Habits by James Clear right now. Those daily habits of consistent action, they create that compound interest of life success. I think that's a really important thing to think about, just keeping moving, keeping those small actions happening and controlling the controllables. We often feel out of control in life, so focus on the things that you can manage. An underrated skill is? The ability to reverse part quickly and accurately. (laughs) 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 That and having a good sense of humour, but... I think that's an underrated skill in my book. The amount of people I see in tiny cars that can't reverse park into a gigantic space is sometimes a a stressor for me. (laughs) So I think think that's an underrated skill. (laughs) Without a doubt. And I am looking forward to... (laughs) I'm looking forward to um, getting out and about more. I think getting in front of people, having human experiences again. I think it's probably been spoken about to death, but two years of being locked in houses and on virtual screens. I think uh, extroverts like me can sometimes tap you out a little bit. So I can't wait to hug people. Uh, I won't be doing any more elbow, you know, bumps. I'm a a hugger. I can't wait to bring people in and give them a bit of yazzy love. Uh, Yaz, thank you so much for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing and thank you for the work you're doing. It is so important. Thank you so much for having me, Meg. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yaz is such a powerhouse and I love her positive and practical approach to technology. I hope this conversation has inspired you to become a little more curious and courageous when it comes to technology. To learn more about YSAFE and the incredible programs they offer schools and organisations, visit their website, ysafe.com.au. Before you go, I would like to invite you to complete two sentences. Number one, from this conversation, I want to remember. What is your pearl? And number two, the action I am going to take in the next 24 hours to support my well-being is. 
If you love the show, please rate and review on iTunes and Spotify and share with your family, friends, and colleagues. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 35. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.